Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at One Hope Wine. One Hope is a Napa Valley winery built on hope and rooted in purpose. Every bottle of their award-winning wine supports a meaningful cause. What does this mean? It means One Hope's commitment to high-quality wine is as important as their commitment to the causes they support. Through the sale of every bottle, One Hope has donated over $6 million to causes around the world. Can you already see why we love them? One Hope also believes you shouldn't have to sacrifice your wallet to enjoy quality, award-winning wines. Case in point, that's why their world-class Vintner collection begins at $25. How's that for affordability delivered right to your door? Speaking from personal experience, it's been delivered right to my door, and I can tell you, it is delicious wine. To learn more about One Hope Wine, the winery, and to apply to become a winery member, go to onehopewine.com. Follow them on Instagram at One Hope and on Facebook at One Hope Wine. One Hope, we thank you. This episode is also made possible with the help of our friends at Ford's Gin. All right, everyone. If you love a good gin and tonic, Negroni, or Martini, or if you've been tempted to mix up a delicious cocktail from one of our Beyond the Drink episodes, seeing multiple gin bottles at a bar, restaurant, or liquor store may be a little daunting. This is why I love Ford's Gin. It was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at-home bartenders alike to make a really, really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks, while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Simon Ford. Fun fact, the Ford's gin bottle was created to be reused. The label easily peels off and has measurements on the back, that may be used to create things like, oh, I don't know, a bottled cocktail to give to a friend or to keep for yourself. It could be used as a water carafe or for storing juices. You'll often find many restaurants and bars using them in this manner, so why not use them at home too? Here's what I also love about Ford's Gin. As I've mentioned in past episodes, during the pandemic, they gave back to the bartending community. Well, they've actually been giving back long before that. And one of the ways that hits home for me personally and the work that I do is around the issue of food waste. In 2017, Ford's Gin sponsored the Trash Tiki Organization's North American Tour. This included educational classes for the industry about using an anti-waste approach behind the bar through a tropical cocktail lens, encouraging bartenders to take items that may normally be destined for the trash, being citrus peels, unsold daily pastries even, avocado pits, and repurpose them to use as ingredients in drinks. Some were made into syrups, and some were made into other types of things, such as fermented drinks, for example. They then hosted consumer-facing events showcasing these drinks. Cheers to you, Fords, for always supporting the bartending community. To learn more about Fords Gin, go to FordsGin.com. And follow them on social media, at Fords Gin. Please drink responsibly. Fords London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Fords Gin is a registered trademark. Fords Gin... We thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. 
Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. Let's start by naming 10 of your favorite ethnic cuisines. 10 of my favorite ethnic cuisines. Number one, I would say is Korean. I would say number two is most likely Middle Eastern. I would say three is Japanese. Uh, four would be, is French considered ethnic? Sure. That's good though. <laughs> you sound good. You sound good. We're ready to rock. Today's guest is a chef and entrepreneur. She's been in love with the kitchen since cooking alongside her Korean grandmother at a young age. She was born in Southern California, graduated from the Art Institute of California in Los Angeles, and has worked with and been praised by some legendary chefs, including the late Joelle Rubichon, named chef of the century in 1989, no big deal. She advocates for using farm fresh, local and responsibly sourced ingredients and has been featured in numerous publications for her accomplishments in the culinary industry. Today, she owns and operates a full service chef consulting and catering business, but you can also find her working out and taking a dip into cold plunge pools. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Naisha Arrington. Let's go back to uh, young Naisha in the kitchen with her grandmother. Take us, take us back. We're going back. Okay, picture this. It's a beautiful sunny California day. It's an amazing, aromatic, beautiful Meyer lemon tree in the backyard. And that tree, whenever I think of my grandmother's house, I, I always picture opening that back door and seeing this pristine Meyer lemon tree and to this day that is one of my favorite aromas and one of my favorite ingredients to use and actually I have a uh, slight segue I have a an amazing Meyer lemon meringue pie recipe that uses a ginger snap crust and the Meyer lemon pie recipe actually comes from my dad's side of the family but the Meyer lemon aroma comes from my mom's side so for me that's one of those legacy recipes that is very near and dear to my heart, uh, which I developed over COVID. So I'm really proud of it. But yes, let's go back to the year. What would I be about four, five years old, 1987. And my grandmother helped my parents take care of me, you know, working blue collar family. Uh, both my parents were. She like they say in the Korean culture is like a dragon mom, <laughs> they call them in that they're very, how do I say, I don't even know if strict is the right word, but like very regimented. You know, I had a childhood where, you know, I'd have to like read books and learn a life skill and, you know, it was very uh, knowledge-based upbringing in my um, early stages of like those early formidable times of brain development, which I'm super grateful for. I always remember that, you know, just sitting next to her, doing math problems, you know, of course, being in the kitchen and uh, cooking next to her as, as often, you know, that I can remember that we were always in the kitchen together. You know, I remember specifically like being a kid, stepping on the step stool. And I remember Blanche learning how to blanch a broccoli, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like cleaning broccoli with my grandma and garlic, she would make tons of um, condiments. Unlike I think the standard American refrigerator, her refrigerator, I can always remember opening the refrigerator door and hearing the clinking of like glass bottles on the side of the panel of the door. And there'd be these like almost like tinctures of like 
you know, different oils and different sauces and everything that she would make and different fermentation projects. And, you know, it'd always be like the resident garlic peeler. You know, I would eat random things like octopus. I remember eating octopus for the first time when I was a little kid and not being freaked out about it. Right. Like, like, like I can literally remember that when I was a kid and um, we'd always just essentially boil it and uh, cook it cook it down and uh, eat it with gochujang and steamed rice and a lettuce wrap and eat very communally. And she taught me how to use chopsticks when I was young. But I would say, you know, the media really latched on to that idea of my grandmother being Korean. Obviously, I'm an African-American woman, but being brought up from her, I feel like whenever I went to grandma's house, it was like stepping into a new world, you know, because it was like a different experience that I would get when I would be in, you know, school and be at my parents' house where my parents did not cook traditional Korean food. But when I would go to grandma's house, it was just this like discovery, like, you know, all of the time. And she was uh, very adamant about teaching me life tools. So I'm very grateful for her because a lot of her teachings really show up in my adult life, I feel like. And yeah, my sister and I, you know, which we're four years apart, but my sister did not love being in the kitchen. So that was always really funny. And I I remember like, you know, my grandma, for example, my grandmother would say like, Oh, you're going to peel these like five pounds of garlic. And I, and I'd be like, okay, that like definitely looks like it's going to take a lot of time. And my sister would not want to do it either. But I remember this sort of cognitive thinking when I reflect back on my childhood of thinking like, Grandma's going to make us peel this garlic regardless. So either we're going to learn how to do it quicker and fast and efficient and get it done so we can go play or we're going to like lament over it. So I think, you know, to the point earlier I made about life tools and uh, using those skills as an, an adult, I think that those little tasks help me problem solve today. That's amazing. So smart of you at such a young age. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I could have ever chosen any other career. I think that being a chef is definitely that like medium of self-expression. You have one sister? I do. And is she still like want nothing to do with food or is she into it? She's not like super into it. She's just, she's a different brain. She's not a very right brain artist brain, you know, because I think that food is that medium of self-expression and soul and legacy and all of those touch points. But she's very analytical. She's she's um, extremely like intelligent and she's very left brain person. You know, that's how she expresses herself. Got it. So, so grandma was like usually at the house or you were going to her house. Question. Describe your grandma in three words. Yes. Number one, I would say grace. She, she had a way of like almost just like floating, you know, she's just this like entity. That's, yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, yeah, just very graceful, definitely strong and a nurturer, very much a nurturer. Talk to me about mom and dad, because I saw some like beautiful posts about your dad, like being your hero and best friend and all that fun stuff. And then we, before this, we were talking about your family barbecue yesterday. So I want to hear more about them. Oh, thanks for asking, Andrew. Yeah, my dad is my best friend. He and I were texting last night and that family barbecue. I mean, we've all been through a lot in the world and 2020 and life and all the things. But I remember texting last night because I'm a pretty like athletic person and all my little cousins and all the like grandkids and all the next generations that are coming up. You know, it's fun because I get to, you know, I was throwing the football around with them and I'm a pretty like athletic person. I work out a bunch and I just love 
sports. My dad was the coach of my softball team and he got me into martial arts when I was very young. And he, he just has a way of being so, so emotionally intelligent. And so, I mean, he's just the type of guy that would give his last bite of food to an ant on the street, you know, and he has such a universal perspective on life. Like he, I think a lot of times today, and especially in a digital age, you know, life can seem so, you know, compartmentalized, but also, you know, I think sometimes it's hard to expand our mindset and understand that we are almost nothing in the perspective of our universe, right? Not to get to whatever you want to say, but that's just my perspective and, and, and his perspective. But I mean, and I have to say, he's one of the most intelligent humans that I've had to pleasure to know. And he also happens to be my dad, but he has, he's so kind and has a way of making other people feel comfortable before himself. I mean, he's the guy puts everyone everything before himself. And um, yeah, he's definitely my best friend. And, um, you know, yesterday being able to put that barbecue on and be at a point in my life, you know, financially, you know, emotionally, like, you know, I'm not in a restaurant every single day, like, to be able to, you know, look back on the last 20 years of my career, where I didn't get to make it to every holiday. I didn't get to make it to every Father's Day or Mother's Day or, or family function. And to be able to provide the space for all of my family yesterday was like, very, it was, for, it was for, my, for my mom and dad, you know, uh, for myself and for everyone else, definitely. But it was definitely so my family can, you know, create those congruent memories and food data of what the human life experience is in our, in our individual lifetimes. But I think we're on this constant pursuit to create good memories, right? So uh, that was my, my goal yesterday, um, as you brought up the barbecue was to create some good memories and, and take the photos and stuff. And yeah, he, he's a, he's a superhuman. He, he takes care of my mom who had a stroke about 12 years ago and he's, her number one caregiver. So he works a 40 hour work week and takes care of my mom, feeds her, cooks for her, like cleans for her and does all the things. So, I mean, he for sure, since I graduated culinary school, he's been the driving force of my entrepreneurial spirit to be the most successful I can be, to be able to, um, to help them because, you know, he doesn't have his brothers and sisters and parents, you know, he, he, he has me, you know, so I, I think about and want to be able to carve out a future where I don't have to worry about my, my parents, you know, because it's important, I think, to be able to care for one another. Were they always like supportive of you as you were getting into your like school and career and all that? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> it, there's been like a plethora of answers over the many seasons we've done of like ranging from every side of the spectrum, as you can imagine. So I'm I'm always curious. Yeah. So when I was in high school, sort of, I graduated in the class of 2000. I've always been into art since I was a kid. I grew up painting and sculpting. They put me in a lot of art classes, my parents. I told my dad, I said, I, I, I want to pursue art, like paint, you know, and he didn't love that idea. And I remember we were standing in the kitchen. I had to be about 17 years old. And, and I told him that, and he said, he had a really interesting point. He said, you know, Naisha, 
artists aren't celebrated until, you know, we're living in a different time now. I feel like art's definitely a little bit more celebrated as a creative, but he said artists don't really, you know, aren't celebrated until they pass and they're not, and their art becomes valuable once they're not making art anymore, you know? And I thought, oh, interesting. It's an interesting perspective. And then I thought, okay, you know, I grew up cooking all of my life. When I was a kid, when I was nine years old, 10 years old, I would play restaurant and I called my restaurant A plus one good restaurant. And my dad, when I first, when I opened my first restaurant, he sat at my chef's table and he's not a, he doesn't have a very adventurous palate. He's not a person who dines in restaurants. He's a meat and potatoes guy, very simple. You know, I cooked for him as the world knows me as a chef. John Arrington knows me as his daughter, nothing more, right? And when I cooked for him that day, it was a tearful moment because he said he looked around my restaurant and he said, wow, Naisha, like you did the thing that you said you were going to do when you were a kid, you know? And because I told him, he said, what would your restaurant be? And I said, you know, it'd be so cool to have a pantry to make different cuisines every day. And my point to your question is, you know, when I was in culinary school, when I started going, they, it was very expensive, still paying off my student loans to this day. Me too. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, I went and I pursued it. And of course, I think, I think my parents wanted me to take the traditional route and be, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or, or not that it's traditional, but just something of like, you know, that our parents would feel comfortable that we'd be comfortable in. <laughs> Correct. Exactly. Exactly. The least amount of struggle. And so, you know, I think about a year into culinary school when he saw the things I was accomplishing um, and how happy it made me. And this, you know, goes for both my parents and, and the joy that it brought me and the opportunities that it brought me and the places it took me. He said, wow, like, you know, you really figured out the recipe, sort of pun intended, in life, you know, and that's just to pursue happiness, right? And and to never feel like you have to work a day in your life. You know, that was always his big message. Um, when we go on little like road trips or just, you know, have our little father-daughter moments, he was always with these like affirmations with you, Will. And a few of them stick with me. I'll share them. Um, one was, he said to me, you know, life is like a, a painting and you know, you have the borders and, and literally it's a blank canvas and you have the capability to paint your vision in your, in your life painting. And, and that always stuck with me. And also he said to always aim for the moon and hit the fence post, but never hit the aim for the fence post and hit the dirt. And I always think about that in challenging situations because I'm the type of girl person who like, I don't know what it is. I like put myself in uncomfortable situations if I know I'm going to grow from it, you know, if, even if I know I might fail and, and I, and I do, you know, but I think it's important to try, you know, and the life experience is the, is the, is the value is the takeaway. And I think he specifically, you know, my mom shared with me other amazing attributes that make me a whole human but he specifically was the driver of like that, like vulnerability and that like uh, relentless drive to be the best because, you know, that's, that's, 
what I saw in him, you know, and he, he definitely is my superhero. And, and I just really am in this race to try to get to a place where I can help my family out. You mentioned your mom had a stroke 12 years ago. Did that uh, like shift your perspective on anything like with your career or w- w- work life in general? I remember I was at work that day when she had her first stroke. She's actually had two. And I remember thinking like in that moment, like, should I leave my entire team right now? And I was in my, I had to be in my early twenties where it's like, you still don't really know kind of who you are as a human and you're still learning and collecting life data. And I, I, I've always had to kind of fight, you know, for like my voice to be seen, to be heard and, and to have respect. And like, I didn't know like if leaving would show a sign of weakness. And, um, you know, I, I, I kind of kept it in when I got the call for, for a couple hours and was checking in with my, my parents and, um, you know, ultimately things kind of stabled out and I, and I, le- I didn't leave immediately in the restaurant that day. You know, I waited about two hours and, and then I excused myself from service and, and drove out to my parents' house and was there because it was important, you know, it was very important. I think for sure that brought our family close together. I think, you know, I had to be like 22 or something at the, at the time. And, you know, at that stage in our life, I think my sister was probably 16 or 17. You know, we're both becoming our own little adults and like leaving the nest. And um, so it definitely brought us back together. And we have a strong little tribe, the Arrington tribe. For me, it's interesting. You know, I've always looked at food in one facet of my cooking as as fuel and as medicine. So I'm very conscious and aware of what I put in my body. Of course, I eat for pleasure, but I also eat for fuel, you know, and, and that comes a lot from my dad. I saw him do that, do a lot of, you know, fasting and he'd like make his own vitamins with different like powders and stuff and make them for my sister and I. Um, when we were very little and my mom definitely had like a different approach to food and, and things like that. But I definitely, you know, seeing my mom yesterday and the joy that when she smiles, it it just lights up a room and, you know, she's, she's just, she's a beautiful human and very, very special to me. And, you know, I'll always be there for her. And um, she's very, very strong, very strong, like, soulful human when you look in her eyes you you see like pure like strength and joy yeah i love that do you still cook any of like mom or dad or grandma's recipes yeah i do um i do i i cooked a lot during the pandemic um more so than ever and 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 a lot for just my neighbors and people of need and, and just to share because it brings me joy. It fills my cup. You know, and I developed that Meyer lemon pie. Yeah. But I am always, I'm an explorer. You know, I, I love to like learn new recipes and um, kind of create these like touch points that tell a story. Right. So it's, yes, I celebrate my family and their recipes, but I'm also like, I love to travel. I love to taste food firsthand in other countries and, and just be a conduit. Like, I think that in the small amount of time we have on the earth, like my, my responsibility is to, you know, celebrate my ancestors and share my life journey with people who are fans, if you will, and then create a path for the, for the future generations. Like that's my connectivity. Did you work 
ever? Do you remember your first job? Or did you work as a kid? Hmm. I did. I do. I remember my first job. My first job was in fast food. And I worked at a fast food chain called Taco Bell. And I value that life experience greatly. I was 17 years old. I was still in high school. I was a junior in high school. And I remember I got my first little job. And I remember how good it felt to like earn a paycheck. I loved it. What did you learn from T-Bell that um, you like st- that took with you? So many things. First, I remember, I well, I saved up enough money to buy my first car, like all by myself. And that felt really great. But I do remember, you know, just life skills, like being interviewed and like, you know, my heart pacing fast and, and like wanting to appear calm and collected. But really, I'm like, um, you know, I'd never done an interview before. It's like, it's a it's, it's challenging to sit across from someone and, and then post questions, and you want to sound articulate and smile and do all the things and hope that you're answering them correctly, but also be honest and vulnerable. And, and that's a, a lot as a young mind, you know, so it was my first step into adult freedom, if you will. But I remember I was hired on as this is a funny story. I remember I was hired on as a cashier. And I remember always looking over my shoulder at the hotline and seeing the three people on the line, right? And, you know, there'd be the like head person who was like the main taco person. And the like good ones could like put multiple taco shells in their hand because you have to like stack them parallel side by side together in your hand. And then they have this like parallel scooper thing with the meat and like, you have to be really quick. And I just remember it being in awe of seeing that. And in, in like, you know, less than six months, I basically like made it to the line to let the like head of the line. And I was like, I did like 10 taco shells was like killing it. And I was like, so proud of myself and, you know, just being a leader and being, being happy and stoked to inspire people on the line. You know, and I remember that was some of the, formidable stages of of my cooking career was at Taco Bell. For sure. For sure. For sure. So when did you get into fine dining? After culinary school? After high school, which is where I was working at Taco Bell. I graduated in the year 2000. I, and then I went to culinary school um, directly after that. I actually took maybe the summer off, about three months, and then came down to Santa Monica, where I currently live now, and went to culinary school. And... I met a gentleman by the name of Rafael Lunetta, who had a restaurant called uh, Giraffe. And Rafael is an amazing human, but I was tasked in one of my classes by my sociology teacher, who was an amazing human, is an amazing human. She was born to a chef. She was the daughter of a chef. She's French. She, She was also my French teacher. And... Basically, she tasked the class with the assignment to dine in a restaurant alone. So at 18 or 19, however old I was at the time, I went to Giraffe Restaurant. And I walked in the back door because my one of my culinary student colleagues was working there. And Dan, you know, I chatted with him. Long story short, I ended up dining in the restaurant. I met the chef, Chef Raphael who would, would go on to change my life forever. Uh, he gave me my first surfboard and gave me a shot on the line. So I remember I was interning at Giraffe Restaurant. I was the only female in the kitchen and the only person of color. It was difficult. <laughs> it was so hard. And it was fine dining and it was very hot and it was high pressure and high pace. And um, I mean, when I say that kitchen was hot, it was like abnormally hot. Like there was just a 
the way it was structured and the way that the line was with the dish station and the downstairs, it was, it was a, it set me up to, for the later luxuries in bigger, well-ventilated kitchens, but uh, <laughs> it was great. It was a great life experience. Yeah, that was my first fine dining position. I worked there for free for about a year. Through him, I met a gentleman who's his best friend, Josiah Citrin, who has a restaurant called Melise. And I went on to open three restaurants with him. Uh, and then I ran the line as a junior sous chef in 2006 at, at, the, at Melise. We didn't have stars then, but when I was cooking on the line, uh, we attained the stars, which was a big deal. That was definitely some of the more formidable times of sort of cutting my teeth. You know, Anthony Bourdain was a big, 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 big deal. That's when Kitchen Confidential sort of came out little bit few years earlier and I remember getting that book and reading it cover to cover and then back again and 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 I'd never had that set of sort of visceral experience with a book like I remember reading it like the words were jumping off the page like I was eating them I couldn't understand because it it just spoke to my soul so much and then from there I went to work for Joël Robuchon the three-star Michelin and it's interesting because for me I think the draw in fine dining was not not the preciousness of the food, not the inaccessibility to everyone, um, you know, because generally the one percenters are eating there or like, you know what I mean? So it was about the mechanics and the technical skill and level of self-discipline that it takes. Because like I said, I think I put myself in very uncomfortable situations because I understand that it's going to help me to grow. Yes, fine dining, it spoke to me, you know, for sure. I can comfortably say now, I won't say I closed my fine dining chapter, but in the year 2019 of November, uh, I competed in the most elite cooking competition in the world called the Boku Store. I'll back up. I was in Israel, and I want to say around August of 2019, and a gentleman by the name of Gavin Kaysen called me and said, hey, you're one of three chefs in the nation chosen to participate in this in the trials to represent team usa in the boku store and i said wow you were the first female finalist of the boku store come on now the world chef championships yes don't hide this from me i i know i I know i i know i know where you were i know who you were with i got it all naisha okay keep going i love a good intel (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was a big deal and i have to say andrew you know on that journey speaking to the fine dining subject through the grueling grueling years of what it takes to be successful in fine dining and how you have to show up every day as a human through that competition. I mean, it's next level. I mean, you're, you're, you're planning every second, you and your partner, my Comey, he actually moved in with me in my office from Sonoma. We turned my living room into a makeshift kitchen and just were all in, you know, I'd wake up and go around the stairs six o'clock in the morning every day. It was just dialed in, dialed in. I'll have to say when I completed the competition on time and through a lot of um, hurdles, saucing those plates in front of those 10 judges, Thomas Keller, Daniel Balloon, I knowing that that sauce is beautiful and crystal clear, like the most delicious product I could have given you from my heart and soul. That was a pinnacle moment. You know, I had these gentlemen's books on my bookshelves for years and, and, I've always looked up, looked up to them um, and, and the amount of what they've accomplished and what they've done for the culinary 
field. But I, I'll never forget those moments of like the crowd roaring and so many amazing humans came out to support. And there was just a stillness and calmness in my in my being, saucing those plates and, and setting it in front of the judges and and the elation that I felt from them with them trying to like be buttoned up. But I'll never forget, I'm getting chills thinking about that moment, but um, I'll, I'll never forget after I finished and it was done and I could have collapsed and tears were falling out of my face. I wasn't even like crying. Tears just like fell out of my eyeballs. <laughs> like it was such an emotional roller coaster. We were exhausted. I was probably, you know, but Thomas Keller walked into my kitchen and he shook my hand and looked at me in my eyeballs. And he said, you know, chef, it, it, it's, it's such an honor to watch you cook. And that for me was like a big deal, you know? Hell yeah. I just got the chills. Oh, I mean, it was so beautiful, <laughs> you know? And I think in that moment I said, wow, I, you know, the fine dining thing, <laughs> you did it to like the top, you know, the best you can do and, um, and challenged yourself the entire way. So, you know, I, I set in on that fine dining journey and, and took it to the Boku store trials. <laughs> did someone, did you want to do that? Did you know you wanted to do that? Or did someone like put it in your head? Like did someone talk you into it? Yeah. So the year prior, I'd, I'd went to France, to Lyon to watch the competition. One of my old chefs at Robochon competed. And I knew, known a couple chefs who have competed. And um, I just started, it kind of just grew. You know, once I went there, I watched the competition you know, taking the train with one of the other previous competitors and just talking through it, the excitement of USA being there and just, and, and the idea that there'd only been one woman to win it, you know, in the eighties, like, and, and no women of color ever competing. You know, I think there were a few attributes and my competitiveness. I grew up in sports. I grew up in martial arts, you know, and being able to exercise all of those skills, being, being on a team, using my medium of self-expression through food, um, almost having this Jedi-like mindset of where you have to think and map out your grid before you execute. And that's like a matter of seconds that that cognitive thinking pattern happens, right? So I think it, for me personally, it, it exercised all of those like components for me. There is a, a group. That's, a, that's not for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, it's, it's, that's good insight to hear because sometimes I, I think I'm like, why don't you see it like this? And it's like, oh, because I only see it like this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think like chefs and cooks are amazing, like the visions they have on the line because it's not easy to like have multiple dishes, you know, firing and going and holding and this and that. And some are just like mechanically incredible at it. And some of them, I think like you have like a kind of a different set of mechanics to really map that out, you know, when it comes to like a professional competition situation. I'm telling you, it's it, even, yes, even in life, because there was a moment and I felt a little bit like, how do I say it? I was like, oh my gosh, Naisha we're not in the kitchen. My dad was like, we were breaking down the barbecue yesterday. And he's like, Oh, like, I'm gonna start taking this stuff to your car. And I was like, No, dad, don't do that. We're not there yet. I was like, I have a system. And he's like, looking at me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, in my mind, it made total sense. I'm like, this goes here. But like, because it's not because it's like a control thing. It's because in my mind, it like makes everything easier throughout the entire process, you know? Totally. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Yes. Yeah, answer your question the mentor group there's an amazing human there young and so I did a dinner at Melise a mentor dinner and she came and she tasted 
my dish and it was a play on a clam chowder, this beautiful whimsical clam chowder with like a vinjoon and foam and all the things. And when she tasted it, she was like at my station and she, you you could feel this like energy transfer. And we kind of just kept in contact. And she said, you know, have you ever, we went to dinner and she said, have you ever thought about competing? And I, and I, I had just closed my restaurant, you know, I was nearly single and I thought, wow, maybe this is a time for this to, I could totally go all in on this competition, you know? And so the thought kind of, uh, evolved from there. Wow. So many questions for you. I'm curious, like one of those first kitchens you were in, you were saying how you were the only, I think you were saying you were the only black female cook. And you, I've seen some of the stuff you've written on how in these fine dining kitchens, some of these best kitchens in the world, it was hard. Early on in your career or later, did you ever want to throw in the towel? And what kept you going? Yeah. One moment in particular was at my first job that I ever had. It was at the Jonathan Beach Club in Santa Monica. And early 2000s. And I remember the chef, Roland Joubert from France, he put a case, a entire case, big ass case of bell peppers in front of me. And old school chefs made this garnish called like a confetti, basically bell pepper confetti, where it's like perfectly brunoise, just the peelings of like red, yellow and green bell peppers. And, you know, that spoke to my analytical brain of like making these perfect cuts and doing all the things, but like, I had to do that for like seven hours, you know, and it, it nearly broke me. Like I remember hour six, like I could barely grip the knife anymore because like my index finger was holding the tang of the knife for six hours, you know, that same motion of like, you know, cutting in a julienne, turning it over, making that into a brunoise and I remember this moment. This was my first job. It was probably, I don't know, a couple weeks in. I wasn't even there that long. And I remember literally walking away from my cutting board and walking out into the hall because the back of my calves were burning so bad because I'm standing in the same spot doing the most remedial task ever on the planet aside from peeling potatoes. And I, I had a whole ass conversation with myself like, Naisha, like, do you really want to like walk away from this right now? I was like ready to like leave because I was like, this is bullshit. Like I'm, you know, not learning anything. Like I'm, these guys clearly don't respect my skill, you know? And like, oh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, you know, a chef. So I had a conversation with myself. I talked myself back into it. And that conversation was like, okay, these people are not going to break you. You know, like if this is this, learn the lesson, right? What is the lesson here? Because if you can do this faster, better than everyone else, you're going to not have to do that anymore. And I got through it. And the most gratifying thing was when the chef came over and I finally finished. No one gave me shit. You know, in my mind, I was like, oh, I'm not doing this quick enough. And all. But by the end of it, he, he said, this is some of the most beautiful Brunois I've ever seen. You know, and that life lesson is been the stoking of my fire because if you just, even if you fail, if you just try to do a good job, there's going to be a lesson in it. Right. So, so that was the first time, (laughs) but I have to be honest. Yeah. So many times I've wanted to give up, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I think anyone of a growth mindset runs into challenges, you know, because if you're not, then it's like, you're not challenging yourself enough. And I, yeah, I have wanted to, but 
I don't, I cannot picture myself doing anything else. I succeed at this because I have a relentless pursuit of excellence, you know? Totally. Totally. So one of my favorite food writers of all time, the late Jonathan Gold, put both of your restaurants in his best 101 of Los Angeles list being quoted in the LA Times as saying, her food tastes like LA. So I have two big questions here. One, what is that taste that he tasted? And the second one, which I can repeat if you needed, you've since closed these two celebrated restaurants and you've said they're huge learning experiences. So I'm curious, what did closing a restaurant teach you? Like, how did you handle that? Yes, I'll start with the lesson. And I'm now standing on my own two feet in vulnerability and honesty. You know, you don't know what you don't know until you know. (laughs) And, you know, so I think the first one was challenging. When I opened it, people were like, wow, she finally opened a restaurant. But for me, you know, I was in no rush. You know, like I... I worked my way up from the bottom, from like pantry, cook, garmage, one, two, three, you know, entremet, veg cook, saute, poissonnier or fish cook, viand, saucier, junior sous chef, you know, sous chef, executive chef, and then chef partner. All the other stuff, you can kind of like be under someone else's wing, right? You're supported when you're like the partner. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it's a completely different skill set right? You're like managing more than just the food. It's you're managing a lot of um, emotions. And it's almost like you're, you're running a classroom, you know, and you're the teacher, you're the business person, you're the face, you know, you're the you're the oil in the engine that that is connecting to all the other organs, the heart, the soul, and, and what what breathes life into it. You know, that's always something that I feel I've been innately good at. I'm, I love being on team sports, as I mentioned, and I'm so grateful to have had that experience as a kid. And when I opened Leona, myself and my partners, I was partnered with the husband and wife team. They were first-time restaurant tours. You know, I thought, wow, when I opened it, like, I, for me, I didn't want to go anywhere else. I thought, this is where I'm hanging out my apron, my hat you know, two story restaurant, you can see the Pacific Ocean, it's in Venice, like it's all a vibe. You know, my communities there, I've been in on the West Side 20 years in LA. I think the biggest lesson for me was just, you know, continuing to learn a lot about myself, like what kind of leader I am, how am I taking care of myself, you know, because you have to give so much, we were running brunch and dinner. And, you know, I rarely took days off. You know, I think it affected my my personal relationships a lot. And I think ultimately what I learned is how to create more of a stable foundation for myself, you know, and not a selfish way, because I think I was burning at both ends. And I don't think that creates a very whole human, you know. Yeah. And I think in the second place, I just really honestly don't think that restaurant was meant to be, you know, there was a point in full honesty where I looked at, you know, even the 10 year plan and I couldn't, I couldn't forge it. Right. Because I'm a person who likes to reverse engineer. If I can see it, if I could see the goal clearly, I will make it happen. I can work backwards, put in the pillars, the brick, the mortar, the love, 
and I, I can grow it. Right. And that's what Leona was for me. It was such a beautiful team. And I'm still talked to a lot of my team there. It was um, a very golden restaurant in spirit. I remember a gentleman walked in off the street and um, walked right up to the pass. I remember wa- watching him meander through the dining room. It was a bustling night and no one really saw this gentleman. And I remember watching him walk in and he kind of just stood at the chef's table and he was like looking around and I said, may I help you? And he said, no, uh, honestly, I just felt the energy and the glow of this restaurant and I wanted to feel it. And that energy exchange for me is like why, why I create a restaurant. It's essentially a house, right? Like, and it's so it's built on love. Like I, I, I don't know how else to put that. And so, you know, fast forward to the second place, I learned a lot, did it way too fast, took on way too much. We were, we were, my partners and I were planning to open three restaurants back to back around the same time. We were going in way too hard, way too fast. And, and the soil needed to be watered. You know, I think it was eight months door to door of closing to opening. And I think in my mind, I was like, oh, I failed. You know, I closed my first restaurant. I mean, I walked away from it. It, it ended up closing, but I ultimately had to leave because the first place as a partner and remove because it just, it, it was not working out. But then opening the, sec- the second place, it was too quick. I thought, oh, I need to open a restaurant. Like Anaisha needs to have a restaurant. It, we, we just did it too quick. And it was less cohesive than the first restaurant. And, you know, in, in full transparency, I think I probably had a lot to do with it too. You know, I don't think that I was the best leader I could have showed up as. I think I rushed into it too quick. I think, you know, we should have taken some time. I don't think we needed to open and go in on three restaurants so quickly. And what I learned, again, I think is just to maintain and think about things in a very pragmatic approach is important, right? And really flesh out what the goals are and make sure everyone's goals are in line so that there's no ambiguity, there's no uncertainty. But ultimately, yeah, that building was very challenging. You know, our plumbing like broke like four times. We had to retrofit the piping a bunch. You know, I learned a lot about structural things. I learned about, you know, just all the mechanics of the restaurant, not not really the food stuff. I learned about plumbing. I learned about electricity. I learned about building codes and 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 that side more, you know. And I remember when Jonathan Gold came in, he came in a couple of times, one specific night he came in and I actually led the beverage pairing for his meal with my Cicerone or uh, sommelier. And we paired a sherry with this delicious, gorgeous crab, Dungeness crab. I just gotten this gorgeous whole crab in and I kind of prepared it almost dynamite style. And he, he loved it. And, you know, he passed not too long after that. I think Native was one of the last reviews he published in the LA Times, if not the last one. And it's so interesting, Andrew, how life works, because I had just been dining with him on a farm at sunset um, from a chef, Virgilio, um, from Central in Peru. He was doing a dinner. It's the first time that I sat and broke bread with Jonathan Gold because it's been a, an entire journey as he's always been this kind of muse because he has a way of articulating my food right through restaurants and the pop-ups that he came to 
back in the day, I think it was 2013. I did this whole pig dinner and, but he has a way of piecing together what I'm trying to convey. He nails it. And I haven't had anyone else really write about my food the way he can bring it back, bring it to life. It's interesting. Uh, Marcus Samuelson had just wrote, written this book and I went to go, just a segue for a moment. Uh, I went to go watch him speak with Jonathan Gold. And this was years and years ago before I had a restaurant, before he probably even tasted my food. And Marcus and I were walking and, and, and Jonathan Gold was there as well. And Marcus said, oh, this is Chef Naisha Arrington. I said, oh, hello, sir. And he said, well, I know who she is. And like, in my mind, I was just like, what? You know who I am? Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know? And he's like, yeah, so I've been watching your career and you know, you're doing a great job. And, and, and it was so cool. Amazing. And oh, when he wrote about my squash dish at Leona and he, he just pinpointed everything that I was trying to convey in it. He almost said it was like a Dutch still life and the sustainability approach in it. And it's just so beautiful. Yeah. He'd always been my muse and to sit and break bread with his family, his wife and his son who were sitting directly across from me. And his wife was sitting next to me. His son was sitting parallel. We, the subject of conversation was, can a technique be essentially copyrighted, you know, or, or is it the chef? Is it the chef or is it the technique that makes a recipe? And I said, we kind of went back and forth on this. And I used the example of Robuchon, right? And, and the Robuchon potato, because when I would have to make that potato every service, no one can make the Robuchon potato like Robuchon does. You know, that potato puree or mashed potato is like heaven. It's so freaking delicious. Of course, because it's equal parts butter and potato, but you know, it's the Lorat potato. It's the technique of drying the potato out. It's the, it's the technique of how it's cooked and riced and the quality of butter and the technique used to incorporate and emulsify that and, and, the, and the, the fat content of the milk and the temperature of the heat and the pan that you use, the vessel you serve it in, all of those things that add up and equate to an amazing mouth experience. You know, we had an amazing, robust conversation around that. And it was two weeks prior and I thought to myself, I'd love to take a photo with this gentleman. And then my second thought was, I'd rather this moment live in my, in my soul, you know, because I remember the sun was going down. It was just a beautiful tablescape, long table. There had to be 30 people at this dinner. And the, the fact that I got that just by chance, him and I sat next to each other. He'd written about my restaurants. We had that encounter with Marcus Samuelson and I'd never really just had the moment to sit and eat with him. And it was so cool. And he's such a cool guy. You know, that was the first part. Those were my life lessons. And I, you know, and I think, you know, I'd love to open another restaurant. I think I'm, you know, I don't know if it's like the third times charm thing, but I think, uh, you know, I've, I've grown a lot. I just think, like I said, you don't know, well, you don't know until you know. And was the competition after the restaurants closed and then you did the competition, right? Correct. Yeah. So the, I closed native 2019 and I traveled. It's so interesting. Two weeks later after I closed it and made that sort of bittersweet decision, but knew it wasn't where I, I it was like, I just knew it was not working out. There was too much mounting overhead, the plumbing, all the fixed costs, labor, all the things. It had to go to sleep. And so two weeks later, people reached out and, and wanted to shoot a kind of docu-series in Belize. 
So I ended up going to Belize two weeks later and spent 12 days there right after the restaurant closed and connected with the people of Belize and traveled around to four different islands there and ate amazing food, stayed in amazing properties, flew in tiny planes, and we documented it all. It's called Through the Eyes of a Traveler. It's on um, the Chef's Feed platform. It's just stunning. I think that really guided my and honed my perspective of who I am because I think I'm on this sort of always evolving evolution of um, you know finding myself or whatever being a wanderlust and being on the journey of life but like for me I I feel like I'm a very I have a, a bit of an unconventional approach to what it is that traditionally a chef is to be known because I lean into connectivity and storytelling through the lens of food right And because that is my passion and because I have a competitive nature, I'm like, okay, the fine dining thing spoke to, okay, doing it at its best, right? Or most elite level. And that's open to, you know, perspective, I suppose, not to say that's elite, but like that idea of like opulence and, you know, and that sort of conversation. But yeah, 2019, I think was my hugest growth year. I, I, being able to travel, going to Belize, went to Israel, I did a dinner in New Zealand you know, I went to Hong Kong and did a pop-up in Hong Kong and then I did the competition. So going into that competition, I just felt this lightness about myself because, you know, I didn't own and operate a restaurant. So that was a good close to 2019. I was already set up to work from home um, as I am an entrepreneur and always have this innate sense of just being able to connect and network and, you know, make things happen, right? And do dinners and, and just be out in the world, right? Doing life. And then, you know, COVID happened and I was already set up to work from home. So I think everyone had a different experience there. But yes, you asked me uh, the two parts. One was the lesson. The lesson. And then the other one was Jonathan Gold. Like what, what is that taste that he tasted? But you, I love those. Uh, I love any Jonathan Gold story. So also in 2019, I'm curious, there's, Maybe this came into play earlier, but it seemed like there was this wellness factor. There was like a plant-based diet that came into play. I hate using the word diet. Plant-based, you know, eating that came into play. Like when and why did this happen? Like why did you choose that? Well, like, you know, I think that after I closed the second restaurant, that whole journey of that kind of four years of the two places and just kind of resetting. It was a huge reset for me and like removing anything on my table that was not working, just kind of slid it off. Restaurant not working, certain relationships not working. And I just kind of, for lack of a better term, just kind of got selfish with myself and re-fell in love with myself, you know, and, and the whole wellness thing came into the idea of, of like this, putting, putting my, my, my well-being first, right? So working out, I, I totally fell in love with fitness, you know, in the way that it made me feel. And yeah, I was working out probably at minimum five days a week, doing a bunch of spin classes. Uh, I found this group of like very inspiring women who are like, you know, CEOs and like boss babes and like all the things. And we just kind of built this community around each other that was super supportive that I actually honestly hadn't experienced because, oh, I will never forget this. The coach of the, of the group of women, I said to her one day, I said, you know, this is so inspiring to me because 
I think that I had always equated drink with masculinity because that's what I was around. You know, I was only around men like and I, I have no I'm not you know, what I mean, no, like negativity towards that. It was just it was just my experience. You know, I didn't I never worked for a female chef. I never was led by that. You know, I was always the leading and most of the time leading men. <laughs> so it was just an interesting, you know, data set that I had until that until that group. And I thought, wow, this is so cool. You know, these ladies are like in in entertainment, you know, CEOs of huge corporations running their own companies, wellness brands, what have you, myriad of um leadership positions and and it was so cool to see that so it drove me even more right and so that and I started looking at what I was putting into my body as fuel as I mentioned earlier and yeah I decided to go plant-based I've always had this uh connection with mother nature even when I was a kid like I I I've always felt connected to to our planet because the way my brain is wired, I always feel like I'm in search of like uh, the nucleus. Like what is the common denominator? Like why asking the why, right? And so for me, when I was going through that thought process as a kid, it had to be maybe 12 years old. And I can remember these things. I was rollerblading in my parents' front yard, my ho- my home. And I know it sounds weird. I'm just sharing. No, bring it. <laughs> I like, love it. I was like rollerblading. And I remember like feeling the sun and looking at the sun and like seeing my parents had this like 1982 red blazer, seeing that on my left and just thinking, thinking my naive thoughts. And I was like, what could, what, what would I do that like brings joy? Right. And it was like food. And it's like, what's something that is never going to go away. Like people always need to eat, but like, where does the food come from? Mother nature, you know, like, and so it just always, it all made sense to me even back then. And so I'd only really been cooking these like opulent dinners, foie gras and cream and the most, you know, wash rind cheeses and triple cream this and, and Wagyu and caviar and all the things that fine dining greens. And, and I, I kind of just was like, I need to take a little respite from that, you know? And, and so once I started eating plant-based, I said, wow, like my output and my mindset cleared so much that I, I just, again, I fell in love with how I felt. I was like up at five in the morning every day, just like zippy. Like my mind was so ready to yes. And I, and I just, I went down a rabbit hole of like biohacking because, you know, there's like the whole intermittent fasting thing, but it's like, if you're, you know, eating at a certain times and how you truly fuel your body when you eat, what, when your body's digesting, how you sleep, I started wearing a, a tracking ring that tells me how much I sleep, what my body temperature is, what my heart rate is, you know, based off of what I put in my body. And at the metrics I would get back, I was able to really analyze different data points. So I went all in on that. I think I just always want to like try to be the best I can. You know, that was kind of the goal in that was like how, okay, like I've, I've been like grinding for the last 20 years. Like what if I put in that same effort, but like into myself, (laughs) Yeah. So like, yeah, the ice baths and, and I, Andrew, like now I'm, it's like, I'm off the deep end. Like I, I love it so much because like, I mean, I'm always, I'm like just such a like growth mindset person. So like last week I like hit my like biggest, like, you know, 
sumo squat, you know, like, which is like 185 pounds. And like, I've never lifted that, that much. I never was like into weightlifting. Like, I don't know. I just was like, <laughs> not a fun thing to do, but I've now love it. And, um, the ice baths, I, a girlfriend of mine had a, um, an ice bath tank on her roof and I went to her place, a bunch of us were just doing them on the roof one day. And I thought, wow, there's no way I can do this. Hold, hold in the ice for three minutes. And when I did it, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And then when I did my, there was a stint where I did no sugar, like zero sugar, no, not like not even natural sugar, no caffeine, no alcohol, no starch, no nothing. I was basically alkaline vegan. There's a moment, I think it was my second ice bath. I'll never forget when I went in the ice bath and I, and I had been doing learning breath work and essentially there was nothing in my colon and my, my microbiome in my body that was digesting anything foreign, right? It, my body was just digesting minerals. And I remember doing my breathing exercise and my mind went to a place where I'd never been before. And this is true truest statement I can tell you the peace that I've ever felt and I hope that I can articulate this well because it was such an extremely beautiful moment I leaned into my breath and I leaned into and and it sort of accept the ice and in my mind there was deafening silence no chaos my mind was nowhere else except in my being in my soul and in my sight, I saw myself sitting Indian style. And I was at this grassy, like green lush peak of a mountain in a vast mountain setting, sitting on a mountain. And I but and I was seeing myself, but my but the vision as I was kind of this drone around myself watching, looking at myself in this green, lush mountain setting. And when I realized what the vision I saw, what was happening, I, I kind of like came to and opened my eyes and realized that I'm not in the green mountain lush setting. And, and the three but minutes is up. <laughs> it was insane. That's like wild. I, it was so Very wild. Cool. Yeah. So cool. cool. And like that piece that I felt was like impeccable. Right. And, 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 and there's no coincidence, right. It was because, my body did the thing, did it, did that on, on its own. I didn't, you know, do anything to it. I gave it what it, what it wants. So the idea that you can control those things is fascinating to me. Right. I could talk about that like for another hour, <laughs> but can we, can you share anything about the Gordon Ramsay project? Next level. Ooh, chef. Fun. Can you it believe seems it? So cool. I know. I love it. I love it. It seems so cool. Oh my gosh. It's going to be so cool. I would love to share this because I mean, when I set out on my career, I just, I just said, I'm going to go, right? I'm going to keep going. And it's funny because I was talking with my dad. And I was like, wait, is this the part? Like, did I do it? <laughs> like, am I there? Late last year, uh, 2020, I, once things started to open up and productions happened again, I did a show called Master Chef as a guest chef. The episode was, uh, we were sort of tasked to create a recipe of legacy and I chose to demo for the three finalists uh, going up to win the Robuchon potato. So I, I, I said, this is, you know, and a ribeye. So a ribeye dish served with, with the potato puree 
and a beautiful petite salad, right? Because I thought this is going to be challenging. How do you know how to temperature control, sear a steak, um, rest, make potato puree, even something as simple as picking herbs, right? Are you going to put, put your herbs in water, not too much ice? You know, are you going to season your herb? Like, how are you finessing all? So that was the dish I chose and I demoed it. And it was a one day shoot. I was there as a guest chef. And Andrew, I can't tell you, like, you know, I've been on a good amount of sets, but to be on like a Gordon Ramsay production was like so inspiring because, you know, in the media, he's like the gnarly pan throwing chef, all the things, which is the type of chef I generally have come up under. So it didn't scare me. But what I, my point is, is that it was run like a kitchen, you know, so it spoke to me. Like, you know, clearly he's like the leader and, and everything he's saying is making sense in my brain. So I felt very comfortable, first of all. So I was able to perform with excellence and confidence. And so I and Gordon worked for for Robichon, Joel Robichon. You know, I'm, I'm demoing my dish and he's standing to my right with Aron Sanchez and Bastianis, Joe. And I'm demoing the dish and I'm just cooking. I'm like cooking my little heart out. Like I do. I, I, I don't, I'm not, I don't know how to half do something. You know, they're telling me prior to when we shoot, you know, lead the team in front of you. Like the three finalists are basically watching me demo this dish and then they recreate it. And so that's what we did. And all I can say is the energy that was like coming off of Gordon watching me cook was like amazing. Like, I don't know how else to articulate this, but he, he just, he was impressed, you know? And, um, you know, long story short, we kind of connected and I was just excited to share space with him. And I didn't want to like make a big deal out of it and like go look for him and say goodbye and do all the things. So I just politely, after I was finished, you know, I, I went to leave and he came like running down the hall and he like shook my hand and he was like, chef, it was so great to meet you. And I was like, what? No, so great to meet you. And I like gave him a big hug. And of course, tears came out of my eyes because it was like a big moment for me, you know, and I told him that when he came to Robichon when I was cooking there, it was like so cool to see him walk through the kitchen. And I was so intimidated by him because he like walked through with like very intentional and kind of just like looked at people's mise en place and like, you know, could care less, no eye contact, but just he was there for dinner. And he just kind of came through as a guest in the kitchen. But I was like, oh, you came in my kitchen in like 2008 or nine. And I was like, oh, so cool to meet you 11 years later. And and so, yeah, he's like, you know, we have to stay in contact and, you know, I'll have my people reach out. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. Like a couple of days later, like his assistant reached out and he said, Gordon has Gordon has been asking if we followed up with you. And they did. And we began a rapport you know, I probably had two or three Zoom meetings with them. And then we were kind of thinking of a concept of a show. You know, we talked through a few ideas. And then this one came up. And I was in New York at the time. And the EP reached out. And he said, look, this is what we're thinking. And so Next Level Chef is essentially... Because, you know, they, they said, like, what are you excited about? And I said, mentorship um, is very important to me. I would be nowhere without my mentors. And I love the idea of sharing knowledge. And so essentially, it's kind of like the voice... For cooking we each get teams and we mentor them you know through this kind of gauntlet style kitchen competition which is really about the chef testants but it's exciting because it's not just like chefs it's like 
you know, now we see this new digital age and different legs of like um, content creators, you know, people who have a robust food knowledge base, but they may have not worked in a professional kitchen. But so there's lots of different people competing. What can I say? I'm very excited. Do you start shooting yet or no? We shoot uh, in a couple weeks, actually. Nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So fun. So it should be coming out early, early 2021. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm yeah. so stoked. Or wait, early 2022. Early 2022. Yeah. I want to get into social impact and giving back, but the question that I didn't plan on asking that I'm going to ask because you said to your dad, is this it, dad? Is when did you know that you made it as a chef? Well, you know what? I I'm learn I know this about myself. I'm notoriously humble and I and I I don't know if like I'll ever quote unquote make it. Like I think I'm like, I'm such a student of life. Like I'm just so grateful to like have air in my lungs and like do my passion every day. And like, hopefully like my goal is to just be able to create and, and, and captivate, you know, people. Like I, I, I think everyone needs like something to inspire them, you know, and I, and I, and I would love to help be that person, you know, for people to actualize their dreams, you know, cause I don't think it's only really in the culinary space. It could be in, in any aspect of life, but I think people, if they just know that someone's like rooting for them and they really have their back and, or they see another story and they're inspired and they can apply that to their life. I think that's really where I'll make it like that. That for me has no, it's invaluable. It, that is invaluable for me because my goal is not to be the most famous person on the planet, right? I hope people recognize what I've, what I'm doing, what I've done for the industry. I hope there's praise for that, but my goal is not to be famous. My goal is to make an impact, you know, and, and to share. Yeah. So which perfect segue we started earlier. I was explaining like why we started this podcast I believe chefs are way more than a delicious dish that we see on a plate in a restaurant or on a, you know, our TV screen. So I know you are active with a number of projects and organizations. And I know the issue of hunger is important to you as is mentorship, as you just talked about. But can can you elaborate a little bit about food insecurity and your mentorship work um, in L.A. or beyond? I'd love to. Yeah. You know, like I mentioned earlier in the pod, I've seen a lot of waste in fine dining, right? Because when people are paying $500 a person, there's allowance for food waste, right? So like I've seen us at times be asked to take an entire beautiful side of fish and you're only really using the center cut, right? And the rest goes in the trash. And it's like that, literally blows my mind, you know, literally blows my mind. And it's quite irresponsible. I have to say, you know, I, I have such high hopes for the amount of impact that I can bestow in my lifetime, because it seems simple, you know, it seems like the equations are there, you know, and I get there's a lot of layers and bodies of governing people that make the rules. But I think these days, as I've kind of come out of the fine dining world, I just really want to use 
my passions and accessibility to my network to help people, right? Because I don't think people are helpless. I just think that a lot of people don't have the know-how to create opportunities for themselves, you know? And I and I'm specifically talking about, you know, places that might not have the best quality food because at the end of the day, if a kid who's seven years old has to go home and help take care of his grandmother or her grandmother and eat top ramen for dinner and maybe not have a breakfast or maybe have a Coca-Cola for breakfast is not going to have the same amount of brain power and cognitive thinking as a kid who had an apple and oatmeal and an orange juice for breakfast and got an amazing comfortable night of sleep and a hug and a kiss and has a tutor. It's just, you know, and I think that if I could help, you know, it's not, I'm not saying take away from anyone else. Right. But I think that there's been a long lane of that opportunity to be given to one person than the other, you know? So I think it's important to try to help people who don't have access, you know, I'm very passionate about donating my time and my resources to to those causes as much as much as I can. Absolutely. I feel it's my my duty. Yeah. Are there specific organizations you want to call out? Yeah, I think, you know, Food Forward is amazing. I think LA Mission is amazing. I spent some time down there uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, and I think actually going to these places is really the the jarring thing because you know, I live in Santa Monica. I live by the beach. I'm in my bubble. Like I, I ride my bike to the beach when I get bored, you know, like when I go to downtown LA, it's like a completely different setting. You know, you see people like impoverished and it's like, it's insane. So, you know, at LA mission, when I went there, there was a line around the block of like people who are living on the streets. And it's like, I, I will, I wonder the backstory of and the pain that these people feel every day, you know, it's like food, food has such a powerful way of being a healing mechanism. And I think, you know, ultimately we could, you know, it's not about like everyone says change the world. I I don't think this has to be this big to do. I think it's, it could be in small increments, you know, to create this like reverberation of um, this kind of cause and effect. Yeah. Love it. All right. Let's do a quick speed round. Let's go. And then we'll close it out. (laughs) Question one, what did you have for dinner last night? Last night, oh my gosh, this is so funny. So I spent the whole day, I smoked the most delicious baby back ribs. I made eight racks of ribs. Cousins brought all kinds of food. We had a mac and cheese contest. We had all things. You know, I barely even ate at my own barbecue. I think I forgot to eat because I was entertaining everyone. And so I totally... At like nine o'clock last night, and this is so not plant-based, I ordered tacos. <laughs> I ordered um, a couple potato tacos and then um, I got a cheese enchilada and it was great. And I was so stoked about it. Yeah, that's what I had for dinner. <laughs> awesome. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Ooh, oh my gosh. I love brown butter. When I when you make brown butter, that aroma that per- permeates those like delicious caramelized notes there's nothing like the smell of brown butter yeah name a smell in the kitchen you hate a smell in the kitchen i hate pass how do you think about it all right what pisses you off in the kitchen a not sense of urgency carelessness specifically this is really granular not folding your towel like fold your towel you have to fold your towel in your kitchen it's like 
I never, you'll never see me set a towel down and not fold it. I do it at my own home. <laughs> so funny. So funny. What makes you happy in the kitchen? What makes me happy in the kitchen is the bustling sounds of service. I mean, it's like an orchestration and I, it, it's, it is, it's like a beautiful musical, right? When you can like hear the clanking of a certain the way, like a spoon touches the edge of a pan or the sizzling of a beautiful steak or, you know, the, the sound of the Vitamix, you, you can almost know what is being cooked or prepared by the sounds of the kitchen. And all of those like layers on top of each other are, are so magical. Yeah. I love it. All right. Let's close it out with the final question. Throughout this time we've been talking and on your social media, you talk a lot about like people's legacies, trailblazers in the industry icons, legends, and you've definitely touched upon this throughout, but what would you want people to say about your career, like about your legacy in the food world? I would want people to say that I led and created an unconventional approach to cooking and chefing, what it is to be a chef, because I think before it was you don the, the chef coat, you may wear a toque, uh, you get a great write-up in your restaurant, people patron your restaurant, and that's, that's the recipe. Now, it's not. I think, you know, I've done so much, you know, from fine dining to the elite cooking competitions of the world to going on tour with Stevie Wonder and, and cooking for him and, and seeing a truly, for lack of a better term, magical human being just being able to be in contact and have conversations and share space in the same room of people who are living in their purpose. I would like to say that, you know, people would say that she always led her own path. Chef, this was awesome. Mm. I loved it. I know quite like a good amount of the folks that we talked to on the podcast. I don't think you and I have ever like formally met in person, but like seeing what you've done and scrolling through your social media and how you write and how you share and the energy and joy and love that you spread is awesome. Like hearing about that random guy on the street coming into your restaurant, like I get it. You know what I mean? So thank you for your time. Thank you for the joy you spread. Thank you for the your voice and the work you do to help people in LA and way beyond best of luck on shooting. And I hope we get to hug one day uh, in person soon. Same. This was quite enjoyable. I do a few, I love sharing dialogue. So, but this has been very lovely and your spirit really yields a great result because I feel comfortable. So thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks again to Chef Naisha Arrington. Find more on her at naishaarrington.com. To learn more about Food Forward, go to foodforward.org. And for the LA Mission, check out losangelesmission.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplaypodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joe Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Mead. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. 
Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen. 